Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. Uh, Today, we're taking a short respite from the war in Ukraine and focused on this past weekend's events where voters in Hungary went to the polls for national parliamentary elections. Uh, Despite efforts by the opposition to unite around a single candidate, Viktor Orban won a fourth consecutive term as prime minister as his right-wing Fidesz party retained its two-thirds supermajority that has allowed it to reshape Hungarian politics and society over the past 12 years. Indeed, there is evidence that Orban's previous actions to crack down on democratic freedoms in Hungary played a major role in this year's elections, with international observers claiming that a biased media environment and corrupt campaign finance rules tilted the playing field in his favor. Looking forward, the European Union and the Transatlantic Alliance are certain to face major challenges from Orban's continued leadership of Hungary, including his consistent pro-Putin stance amid the war in Ukraine, his ongoing efforts to undermine the rule of law, and his hardline stance on critical issues like migration. So to discuss all of this, we're really excited to have Dan Kellerman back to Brussels Sprouts. Dan, welcome back. Well, thanks for having me, Andrea and Jim. For uh, folks who don't remember Dan, he is professor of political science and law and Jean Monnet chair in European Union politics at Rutgers University. He's authored six books, including The Transformation of Law and Regulation in the European Union, which won the Best Book Award from the European Union Studies Association in 2013. Okay, Dan, for those of us who have been laser focused on what's happening uh, in Ukraine, can you just give us a little lay of the land and what happened over this past weekend with the election in Hungary? Kind of get us up to speed on where what happened and where we are now. All right. Uh, so they had parliamentary elections in, in Hungary on, on Sunday, and uh, Viktor Orban's party, Fidesz, uh, won an overwhelming landslide victory. They uh, were able to retain, which they also had before, a two-thirds supermajority in the parliament. Um, and that enables them, by the way, to do something they've done for many years now, which is change the constitution at will, right? Uh, and the uh, opposition in, in this election had come together in a way they had never managed to before, and they, they formed a united op- uh, opposition coalition, with the exception of one um, far-right party, which kind of ran on its own, wasn't part of that. But the, the main opposition parties, which included quite a spectrum from left to right, uh, they basically tried a new strategy where they, they knew that the election system in Hungary, and, and we can get to all the biases built into it, but they knew the election system you know, favored the biggest party, uh, which was Fidesz. And so if they were divided, they would have no chance. So they formed this united coalition, ran together. Nevertheless, they um, you know, came out with a poor performance uh, and uh, you know, were, were defeated. And I guess the one other thing I would say by way of introduction, and I know we'll get into all this, but even though I, I just you know ran through what happened in the election and, and you know we can talk about what was you know the vote counts and why people voted the way they did, I think we just everyone has to keep in mind that even though they hold elections, Hungary is not a democracy. Okay? Now that doesn't mean that uh, the opposition leaders get thrown in jail like in Russia or, or killed, as happens sometimes, uh, but. What it does mean is that the elections don't meet the minimum standards 
of fairness um, that we expect from a democracy. And that's not just my opinion, that's the leading ratings bodies like Freedom House or the uh, VDEM, Varieties of Democracy Institute. These are the bodies that rate regimes. They have already a few years ago downgraded uh, Hungary to categories like electoral autocracy or partly free country, et cetera. And so anyway, we, we can get into that more, but. Uh, this was an election uh, where parties could contest it, but the system was so rigged in ways we can get into in favor of the ruling party that I, I thought all along the opposition really had no chance. So I want to ask you about that last thing that you said there, that the opposition had no chance. So I love that we're talking about authoritarian politics because, you know, in the class that I teach at Georgetown on the rise of autocracy, we've talked about when and how elections can unseat authoritarian leaders. Um, one of the factors is opposition cohesion, and that was a really significant development, it seems, in this election. And it matters, I think, Dan, for the reason you were alluding to, one is it concentrates votes. So any, so rather than having opposition votes spread over many candidates, it concentrates votes in one. But also importantly, I think it gives the publics in these regimes a sense that the alternative, that there is an alternative to the incumbent. It makes it seem when, when the opposition can get their act together, that there is a more viable uh, alternative to the incumbent. So why is it that Hungarians still are voting for Orban in these elections? And I, you can talk about a little bit of the fraud and the, the idea that this election isn't free and fair, but maybe if you can also touch on the issues that Orban ran on and how those issues kind of resonate or don't with, with the Hungarian public. Sure, yeah. Um... So I'll get to those issues in a second, or maybe let's, let's just start with that. So let's be clear. Viktor Orban and his Fidesz party, they do have a lot of genuine support in the country, right? So even if in theory you ran a free and fair election, uh, you'd have to dismantle a lot of things to get there. But let's say you do that, you know, they, they have a sizable chunk of the population who supports them. Um, and, you know, some of those issues, since you mentioned that, um, you know, actually, the one thing that became salient in the final weeks of the campaign was the, uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. He actually, using his media machine and everything, managed to depict himself as kind of the candidate of peace and said that the opposition, by taking, let's say, the more uh, traditional NATO stance and saying they would side with NATO allies, that the opposition was trying to drag Hungary into war, right? He said, if you want you know, peace side with me. So that, you know, that's one issue. Um, he also really, even though this opposition coalition, the leader was actually a conservative who had been, um, you know, once upon a time, a member of uh, Orban's own party. Uh, he nevertheless, uh, with his media machine, depicted him as like a puppet of the former socialist prime minister, right? So he, he kind of was pushing those buttons. Um, and you know, I think in general, he you know depicted himself as a candidate uh, who would you know ensure stability, continuity, and good economic performance, that sort of thing. So you know, those are some of the issues. Uh, also, uh, he kind of runs on this you know far right nationalist agenda. Um, one thing, well, your listeners may not know it's it's kind of bizarre to try to explain it, but on the day of the election, Hungary also simultaneously held a referendum 
on what he called child protection. It's kind of like what you see happening with the Republicans right now, where they're trying to make everything about like, you know, child porn in the, you know, these uh, Supreme Court hearings and, uh, you know, focus on whether, uh, you know, the, whether the left is promoting like sexual reassignment, um, you know, therapies to young children and all. So he basically had this referendum on whether, you know, the this government should protect young children against being uh, exposed to kind of uh, the, those kind of ideas. And of course, you know, what he was doing there was trying to push the buttons of some of his base on these issues and depict himself as a protector of children. So he held that on the same day of the election. Okay, so those are some of the issues. So fine. And he gets some support, um, you know, for those issues. However, uh, here's what I think is much more important, right? Which is that the system is profoundly rigged through and through. And this was, as you mentioned, the, the OSCE, the Organization uh, for Security and Cooperation in Europe, their preliminary report, which they issued yesterday, talked about the that the election was marred by the absence of a level playing field um, and the pervasive overlap between the ruling uh, party and the government. Uh, and what does that mean? Let me just get into a few of the things. Because again, the cheating isn't, you know, all about uh, stuffing ballot boxes on election day. There may have been some shenanigans like that we can get to, but it's at a much deeper level. First yeah, Dan, of all, the, I think the saying now is like only the amateur autocrats manipulate elections on election day, right? Exactly. Yeah. You know, why would you do that if you could have it all rigged ahead of time? Exactly. So how do they do that? Well, a few things. First of all, um, they rewrote the whole election code to suit the, the interest of their party, gerrymandered all the districts in ways that would favor them, disfavor the opposition. So just from the get-go, the opposition would have to win by at least five to some estimates up to like 10% to actually win, you know, in terms of seats, right? So they'd have to win the vote substantially. But so put that aside, then um, there is uh, the entire media environment, which uh, numerous media watchdogs have published endless reports about this, how basically Orban has taken over print media, radio, television, even leading news websites, so that other than, you know, there, of course, there's people still have internet access, you can uh, look around and find, some, you know, websites that are still independent and give you news. But the vast majority of Hungarians are getting 24 seven government propaganda, right? And for, and that's on both private and public media. For instance, the opposition candidate got like a total of five minutes on the state-run media, which is like the biggest channels, right? Literally five minutes. And then Orban is 24-7. But it's not just the media. It's also this point that OSCE made about the um, overlap of state and party. So what do I mean? Basically, I think what people need to understand is that Hungary now, uh, this has gone on for a decade, so it's well entrenched. It's become a party state where his party, Fidesz, has taken over the state and substantial sections of the economy. And so now they use the resources of the state on behalf of the party. So just to give one example, so beside all the election campaign posters and things, you simultaneously had these posters of Orban all over the country that weren't campaign posters officially. They were like public service announcements from the government that just happened to look like campaign posters and be, you know, favoring the prime minister, but paid for by the government, that sort of thing, right? And then, of course, he's captured election regulators, you know, courts, all the watchdogs. 
And then I think the, the final thing I'll say, just so I don't go in too long and turn it back to you is the economy. I mentioned how he's captured the economy. His party operates a massive clientelist system. So you go to rural Hungary, go to small towns. Uh, there's not a lot of jobs. And a lot of the ones that do exist are controlled by local mayors who are invariably members of his party. And they have these like public make work kind of workfare schemes. Well, as happens all over the world, Latin America, other places in clientless systems, you know, these local politicians, even if they don't go into the voting booth with you, they make it very clear to the people who depend on them for jobs. You got to vote for the ruling party. They threaten, you know, they say we need a big turnout. And, you know, they they manage through that to basically convince people that their their livelihood depends on voting for Orban. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Dan. I think that's just uh, a, a great rundown. And um, and Andrea, thanks for letting me jump in early with a with a question. But but uh, you know, I, I I have to say my original question has changed because of some of the things that you were just saying. And I and this might be a little early in the podcast to ask this kind of deep thought question, but um, at least what I think is deep thought question. But is um, some of the things you mentioned sounded eerily familiar in terms of trends that might be starting or growing a little bit in the United States. I don't wanna to draw too close a parallel between where Hungary is and the United States. I mean, there's a lot of differences and, and it's just not a real apt comparison, but you mentioned gerrymandering, uh, you mentioned the child pornography as an issue uh, bigger than just child pornography. You mentioned a lot of things that you see happening in US politics too. So my question is, um, as you survey the U.S. political scene over the past number of years and the polarization, et cetera, and some of the tactics and techniques being used by politicians at both sides, are you starting to see some things that, uh, that we haven't seen in the past, uh, but we're starting to see now? And that might give you a little bit of a worry that, that we need to pay attention to our own backyard, too. Absolutely, Jim. Uh, in fact, I just finished a, a conference paper uh, yesterday uh, that was looking at kind of at the U.S. in comparison to some of these backsliders, thinking about these questions. So I've been putting a lot of thought into it. And, and well, first of all, um, there's a reason that uh, the sort of uh, many Republicans, especially the kind of furthest right Hannity types, uh, love Viktor Orban and, and, you know, are obsessed with him because he has achieved what they want to achieve here, okay? Um, and what Trump wanted to achieve but didn't pull off. Now, it's clear that there has been democratic backsliding to some extent in the U.S. All those same ratings bodies I talked about, the scores for the U.S. have also diminished, right? But they haven't gone into the categories of like electoral autocracy. You know, we're still a pluralist democracy. Now, why not? Now, I do think we need to worry. We need to be vigilant. And it's an ongoing um, you know, struggle that all advocates of democracy have to, um, you know, stay uh, engaged in to make sure we remain a democracy. I think part of the reason, though, that, uh, you know, someone like Trump didn't manage to do what Orban has done, it's something that's a little ironic. Uh, and not everyone, not all political scientists would agree with me, but I think one of the big things is really actually federalism and uh, both the federal system and the sh sort of sheer size of our country that, you know, even though our federal system allows for a lot of uh, local 
um, you know, cheating in elections. You know, we've had kind of pockets of authoritarianism historically in the South after the Civil War, like the Democratic Party ran single party states for like a century in the, and disenfranchised African-Americans uh, and, and even, you know, much worse things, right? So, um, so we, we know that federalism can allow pockets uh, or enclaves of authoritarian practices in the U.S., but at the same time, I think federalism makes it harder for one national leader to capture the whole system, right? Because, you know, even though Trump was making those phone calls to Georgia, find me, well, how many thousand votes was like he needed? <laughs> Someone will remember the number, you know, but he was calling uh, Brad Raffensperger, asking for votes. He was, you know, pressuring in Michigan. But, you know, you have to capture all these separate electoral systems in order to do it. Whereas in a more unitary country like Hungary, you know, if, if you capture the national institutions, then, you know, th then you've got the system, right? And so, yeah, I'm worried about the U.S., uh, but I think it's, it's a, hard, a bigger hill to climb for an aspiring autocrat here. Well, th that's, that's really helpful. And let me ask a quick follow-up. Uh, you mentioned one of the reasons that it's harder to do the Hungarian approach in the U.S. is because of the federalism. And I think that's a that's I, I think that's right. What are the other tools that we have in our system that the Hungarians don't have? What are the things that uh, that whether it's in civil society or whether it's in the government, it's in the legal system? What are those tools and uh, those uh, guard ramps, if you will, uh, guardrails, uh, if you will, that uh, that we have that keep us from sliding into that, into that autocracy? How can we fight it? Okay, well, yeah, so other than federalism, which is an important one, which I mentioned, um, let me maybe start in kind of society and then go to the government ones. I think in society, one thing is, I guess what I'd say is this, you, to understand what the guardrails are, let's look at the playbook of autocrats and what they do, and then think about them one at a time. One thing they do early on is they want to capture the media. Now, you know, people might have complained, let's say that they thought Fox News was spouting things for Trump, but that's just one station, right? He came nowhere near capturing our whole media ecosystem, right? We have a huge media uh, with, you know, diverse, uh, many offerings, and um, it'd be very hard in, uh, you know, with just the sheer economic size of our media for one leader to capture all of it, right? So he that's would never, some, he would never capture Brussels sprouts. I can tell you that. There, exactly. See, we're counting on you. Uh, and, and so, yeah, media. Uh, and also we have just a very vibrant uh, civil society with lots of, um, you know, organizations that, uh, you know, have uh, strong traditions and bases of support. And you know, I think it's it's just harder to wipe out those dissenting voices. Uh, next, I'd say in terms of our party system, even though Democrats, let's say, are often bickering, and you know, people think the party might be too divided. In terms of here, I'm framing it in terms of you know, someone like Trump. Um, I think we benefited from having, uh, even though it has its own flaws, obviously, the two-party system. I think makes it easier for one party to resist the other if it would go in an autocratic direction. Because often what happens in these systems is if one party gets a majority, let's say is trying to become the autocratic party, uh, as Andrea was saying before, if the opposition is fragmented, then that party can exploit that. But if you got two parties, it kind of helps them hold together. Uh, and then, yeah, turning to institutions other than federalism, I think 
One that's important is our judiciary. And there, it's not just the Supreme Court. I think, you know, uh, an aspiring autocrat can probably capture the Supreme Court, but we have a big federal and state judiciary. So it's kind of related to federalism too, with, you know, strong traditions of independence from politics. And again, I think it's, it'd be hard for any one leader to capture the whole judiciary. Think about uh, the way like state courts and state attorneys general were like bringing indictments, you know, and that sort of thing. So I think those are some of the, the guardrails um, here. I think, Dan, that's, those are really helpful points. The only one I might take issue with is the, that the two-party system can um, inoculate us from authoritarianism. And I say that because of examples like Venezuela or other places where historically two-party states. The thing that I worry about that makes me maybe a little bit more pessimistic about you know, future prospects for American democracy is the polarization. And mm -hmm. that's when you get into the two-party systems. What you know, There's a great work by Milan Svalik who talks about how polarization can orchestrate backsliding because when you have that two-party system, the, the more that those two parties hate each other, the more polarized they are, the more willing one party becomes to tolerate and even support and endorse uh, erosions of democracy if it means keeping the other party out of power. And so that's the thing I think that I worry about is that we're moving in this direction that our society is so polarized. You could see the Democratic Party and its supporters or, vice, or the Republican Party who actually are willing to tolerate and actually encourage the erosion of democracy in order to keep the other side out. So that's, that, that's what I worry about. But, but I want to take you back to Hungary, and you can, you can comment on that if you want. Because as you were talking about Hungary and your point about the single-party autocracy, as you were talking about it, it sounded to me a lot like the PRI in Mexico, for example, that ruled for 70 years. And of course, you have Viktor Orban, who's kind of a charismatic personalist leader at the top of that. But the way you describe the Fidesz party and its ability to permeate Hungarian society and really serve as kind of like a punishment regime where you can dole out benefits to those who support you and withhold those benefits from those people who don't. That there's really good work by Beatrice Magaloni who's like mm -hmm. talks so much about that. And that's what it sounds like. And that's in the heart of Europe. And I guess that's what I wanna come back to because as you're discussing this, you know, now authoritarian system in the European Union, how has the how did the EU respond to this most recent election? What was the reaction? You talked about the OSCE, but what are we seeing from the EU in terms of their response to this, you know, quite very questionable election? Well, Andrea, you've come to my favorite topic and the focus of most of my research in the last five years or so, which is precisely because I'm I, I have some you know, background expertise in Hungary. I you know, lived there in the 90s and you know, speak some of the language and things like that. But really, I'm an EU politics scholar. And uh, you know, the, so I've been interested the whole time with Hungary and other backsliders of how the EU would react. Because after all, the EU is supposed to be, according to its own treaties, a union of democracies, right? And that's the kind of raison d'etre of the EU to promote uh, democracy in Europe, or it's one of its key you know, reasons for existence. Uh, so how has the EU reacted? And here, I have to watch out so I don't go into a, a lengthy lecture here because I worked on it so much, but let me just put it briefly. Before we even get to their reaction to this election, I'm gonna take a little step back and make it clear that the EU has facilitated Orban's rise and his uh, consolidation of an autocratic regime inside the EU. They've facilitated it. How? 
Well, first of all, they've funded it lavishly. So Hungary is one of the major recipients of EU funds. Uh, the other biggest one is Poland, which has also experienced backsliding, right? So ironically, the EU, which has all this democracy promotion agenda internationally, they're actually like the biggest funder of democratic backsliding in the world, okay? Uh, because they underwrite these regimes. And when you look at the kind of patronage networks that uh, or, that uh, Orban and his party operate and you know why they've been able to uh, cement this grip on power, it's all been financed with EU money and construction projects and things like that. So number one, they financed it. Secondly, uh, the Orban had political protection for 10 years until last year. He kind of went a little too far and started losing his protection. But he was in the same EU level political party with Angela Merkel, right, until last year. So it's this European People's Party, as it's called, in the center right. So Merkel and her Christian Democrats prevented the EU from taking any action against Orban for 10 years. You can scour the records and try to find a negative word that Angela Merkel ever said about Viktor Orban, and you'll come up empty, right? Uh, she was his big protector. So that's the other thing. And, and I think the other, just beyond that party story, just in the EU, governments are very reluctant to kind of intervene in each other's internal affairs. And so there's just been this kind of reluctance to take strong action on, uh, on what was happening in Hungary. And then the final thing I would just say, you know, the EU, ironically, has kind of facilitated this because of one of the great things about the EU, free movement of people, right? That's terrific. But what happens then if you're backsliding, and this also happened in Bulgaria, uh, to some extent and elsewhere, that basically a lot of people who are unhappy with life in Hungary, and here I'm talking hundreds of thousands, you know, over half a million, they just leave and go live in other EU member states, right? But that kind of drains the opposition then too, right? So, you know, all these things together have meant that the EU has been a kind of very cozy setting for Orban to do this. And I guess the last thing I'll say, I don't want to talk too long, let you, you know, ask other questions, but yeah, in terms of their reaction, um, well, the, the thing we saw today, just a couple hours ago, uh, and we can talk about the timing, is that uh, the president of the commission announced that the EU would finally trigger this tool they have uh, called the rule of law conditionality regulation, where the EU can suspend funds to a government that has uh, you know, deep breaches of rule of law principles that put at risk EU money, right? They sat on that law for a year. They could have triggered it any time in the past year. And a lot of us were calling for them to do that. But they said, oh, that would look like we're interfering in the election or something. But it's a bit bizarre because then they trigger it two days after the election. Um, well, that's that's a fascinating. I, uh, I, I enjoyed very much your description of the, the EU as a Petri dish uh, for uh, growing this little organism called Orban and his, and his party. But let me ask you also, um, you know, NATO could be a little bit of a Petri dish, too. Um, not as not as rich an environment for uh, uh, for growing Orban uh, as the EU is, but um, the, the NATO is supposed to be a um, organization that celebrates democracy and and common values and defends that and uh, and of course NATO has wrestled with this inability to you know police its its ranks in a sense. I mean, unlike the EU, which actually doesn't have that many tools, well, NATO has no tools. <laughs> uh, they've got problems with Turkey. They have problems with Hungary. 
uh, with backsliding. And, uh, and so. And Poland. Could, uh, yeah. And Poland. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, absolutely. Poland. And I mean, there's a the United States. I'm certain there was a couple of times there in the knack a few years ago when they were wondering about the United States too. So, so, um, so just talk a little bit about NATO uh, and the trouble that this can bring as well to consensus at NATO on things that NATO's need to be doing about Russia. And uh, you can have Hungary, of course, uh, blocking consensus, but, uh, but, but broader than that too. Um, uh, you mentioned the EU as a, uh, how about NATO as a petri dish too? How does that feel and look to you? Yeah, and I think they're the great question, Jim. And I think uh, the EU and NATO have something in common there when it comes to Hungary, which is at least in the area of foreign affairs, right, for the EU and, and common foreign policy. That's an area where the EU decides things by unanimity, which is you know also like a principle in NATO. Because of course, in other matters, the EU votes by majority voting and has a parliament and all that. But when it comes to you know things like sanctions on Russia, right? they decide by unanimity. And of course, NATO operates on that kind of consensus principle also. Well, here's the problem. If you have an autocratic government who cozies up to the real geostrategic rivals like Russia and China, then what you have is a Trojan horse inside yeah. your organization, whether that be the EU or NATO. Where, And that's exactly what Orban has done, is he sort of realized uh, that you know, unlike other backsliders in Brazil or you know other places in the world, he's like, well, I have something special to offer because I have membership and veto power in these powerful security and economic, you know, and political organizations like NATO and the EU. So I will uh, basically cultivate my ties with Putin and Xi Jinping and sort of say, hey, well, I can promote your interests you know, uh, within these bodies. And so that's what he's been doing. And I think it's a real risk. And it may, the worrying thing, he's already done that. So he's already promoted, you can give many examples, Russian and Chinese interests within these organizations. But the danger is that he'll do it even more intensely going forward. Now he's, you know, got this new majority, four years more in power, um, and he may really um, wreak havoc. And I think part of the reluctance of leaders to stand up to him is precisely that they're afraid that he can uh, wreak havoc in these uh, organizations. Dan, do you think he will? I mean, especially thinking on the sanctions front, you know, the, I, to me, I feel like the consensus in f of folks I talked about is yes, Orban is not going to criticize the war. He'll remain pro-Putin, anti-Zelensky. But when it comes time to renew sanctions, he'll toe the line. I think what he, look, one thing to say about Orban is, you know, he's very clever. Uh, he's, he's good at politics, unlike some of his foes. And, you know, I think he knows, and also the, the, the kind of autocrats, uh, you know, dictators abroad who court him as an ally, they know he can't veto everything, right? Uh, and, but what he tries to do then is wield the threat of the veto to extract concessions, right? So, for instance, that's one of the ways that he's avoided being you know, uh, sanctioned by the EU or having his money suspended or things like that, is he sort of threatens, well, you know, if you go down that road, then I'll start vetoing. So it's, you know, it's a kind of game of chicken, right? But I, I think, so I think he'll, he'd like to avoid just indiscriminately vetoing everything. He knows that wouldn't go over well in the US, et cetera. 
but he will try to make enough trouble to extract concessions on issues he cares about. One last question from me, unless Jim has one more though, is, you know, the, speaking of kind of using your political importance to either extract concessions or soften criticism is Poland. Mm -hmm. And we're, you know, we've talked a little bit about how Poland has similar, although lesser problems with democracy um, there. And that now they find themselves on the front lines really of this conflict in Ukraine, both taking in refugees, but also as a hub for putting weapons into Ukraine. Um, what is your sense of the law and justice? And I think that my understanding too is with the law and justice, this has given them a new lease on life, really kind of increased their domestic standing, their popularity you know, with their management of this crisis. I mean, how concerned are you that Poland and well, really that the law and justice party is gonna be able to leverage its growing import in this crisis to soften resistance to either continued or accelerated efforts to undermine democracy there in Poland. Yeah, I think it's um, for the developments, the horrible developments in Ukraine are politically very good for law and justice, right? Rally around the flag effects. You know, they, in Poland, basically parties compete to be, who can be the toughest on Russia, right? And they're the party of government taking the lead within the EU context of uh, you know, calling for the toughest possible sanctions, et cetera. So it's great for them, okay? Um, now, I guess what I would say also with respect to Hungary there is this is an interesting phenomenon where Poland and Hungary have been the best of friends within the EU with their two regimes. In fact, the de facto leader of Poland, people don't always hear his name, but the actual leader of the country is Kaczynski, who is the leader of the PIS party, even though he's not prime minister or president, right? The, those people just follow his commands. And, uh, you know, he once famously said when he was running for election, you know, back or uh, planning, you know, to, to run for election that uh, and he was in a meeting with Orban, we want to bring Budapest to Warsaw. That was his saying, like, we want to emulate your model of this single party electoral autocracy. And that's precisely what they've done since they were elected in 2015 is mimic the Orban playbook. So they've been, and they've protected each other against EU censure. Anything requiring unanimity for measures, they say, I'll, I'll block action against you, you block action against me. Well, now they find themselves, uh, these best of friends find themselves at opposite ends of the spectrum on Russia, Orban being Putin's best friend in the EU, uh, wanting to go soft on sanctions, et cetera, criticizing Zelensky, Poland being the toughest on Russia. And so some people have thought, well, this is will open up a big rift between them. Uh, and maybe that'll create an opportunity to get tougher on Hungary. It, you know, there is a rift. So there's some political space for that. But I think they will, in the end, kind of uh, paper this over and realize, you know, that they have a mutual interest in collaborating. Uh, yeah. So uh, that's, I think, where it stands now. But there is tension for now. I know we're short on time and I have a real quick question. It'll only take a few words to answer. It takes us back to the United States and just your view, um, just your opinion. So how close did Trump get to doing what he wanted to do to bring to bring Budapest to Washington? How close did uh, Trump get to, uh, to, to, to doing that? Just general view. <laughs> oh, that oh, well, that's that's a tough one to answer. Way too close for comfort is what I'll say. 
Um, and yeah, if he could have uh, sort of tipped things with his voter suppression and his other legal uh, tricks in a couple swing states, right? Then you know, he might have got himself back in office. But uh, thank goodness, um, you know, that didn't happen. Dan, thanks for That's doing a- this. I mean, it's it obviously, you know, the world goes, even though we're so laser focused on Russia, Ukraine, there's lots happening all around. Um, and so we're really grateful for you for taking the time to kind of explain it all and, and get us up to speed on what's happening there. So um, thanks again for coming back. And I'm sure we'll have you back on again to discuss these issues um, in the not too distant future. Well, it was my great pleasure to speak to you both. Always enjoy being on your podcast. Thanks. Well, thank you. It was wonderful. Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts brought to you by the Transatlantic Security Team at the Center for a New American Security. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate and review Brussels Sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.